Hello and welcome to the Meditation Conversation, the podcast to support your spiritual revolution. I'm your host, Kara Goodwin, and today I'm joined by Jahan Hamsazada. Jahan completed his dissertation on psychedelics at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's the author of The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution of the Planet. Aside from academic work with the JFK University and University of Arizona, he has undergone several major trainings, including the Hakomi Somatic Psychotherapy Program and the Mazatec Mushroom Tradition. If you're at all curious about the healing potential of psychedelics, you're in for a real treat with this episode. Jahan is full of fantastic insights on how various psychedelics such as psilocybin and LSD heal the brain and resolve long-standing mental illness. We talk about why these substances have such a controversial reputation. These insights might surprise you, as well as their importance in the natural world in terms of their planetary function. So get ready to have your mind expanded. And be sure to check out karagoodwin.com for more resources specific to helping your meditation practice, such as the Meditation Immersion online course to go deeply into your own meditation practice, and the Healing Hearth online community where we meditate together regularly. There's a large meditation library to help your meditation practice and other ways to help your spiritual growth. Learn more at karagoodwin.com. And now enjoy this episode. So welcome, Jahan. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Kara. It's an honor to be here and with your audience. So how did you get into the field of psilocybin research? You know, I, you know, not so much of a different topic than we were discussing right before this, but consciousness has always been a pull and interest. And in, I was in quite of like an existential inquiry as a teen, like, who are we? What are we? How do we know we're supposed to go to the species? What's the point of my life? And that naturally predisposed me to an interest in how we make sense of reality and the idea that we could take a compound and it alters our perception of self and time and space really piqued my interest. And so I had a huge experience as a teen, changed my life. And over for the next 20 years, um, psychedelics have been a part of my practice. That's fantastic. You know, it, it's funny, accidentally, so it wasn't really in preparation for our talk is what I mean by that, but I've been watching How to Change Your Mind on Netflix, Beautiful. which is a four-part series. And I listened to the book years ago. but And so it's been really fascinating to engage with that material again. And all the therapeutic benefits that are being realized now with psychedelics. And so it's I bring this up in case there are listeners and you have your book out, which is The Psilocybin Connection, where... You know, we may think it's this like way to trip out and kind of recreationally have fun or something, but there are real health benefits that are truly helping people from PTSD to cancer to, I mean, all sorts, you know, severe anxiety and OCD, all kinds of things. I don't know if you have anything that you want to share in terms of that type of research and how it's sort of moving people forward in in those terms. You know, as somebody has mentioned, that's been really interested in consciousness in general, different modalities of therapy and of transformation. So not necessarily just from a bias perspective, but statistically, there's nothing as healing. And that's quite a big statement to say. 
but clinical studies have found it's psilocybin psychedelic treatment is effective for 80% of people with treatment-resistant depression. That's a population that no other treatment has worked for. No medications, no other form of therapy. 80% of them heal wow. many times getting out of decades of depression, right? So I see it's probably effective for about 90% of people. Those are kind of the worst hardcore cases. 80% effective for near event of life anxiety. People that have been diagnosed with a terminal illness have six months to two years left to live. And because of you know their terminal illness, they're stuck in this deep state of fear, like hard to even leave the house. They're kind of petrified. And so they can't even enjoy the life they have left. They're able to overcome their fear of death, which is such a deep root for most of us. You know, 80% successful for nicotine addiction and alcohol addiction, which I believe those are the highest numbers of any kind of therapeutic modality for low addiction, helpful for OCD. And what we've seen when it comes to the brain, it stimulates what's known as neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. The brain physically begins to grow quiets what's called the default mode network, the ego part of the brain, as the neuroscientists call it, which is overdeveloped e with people. Oh, ego. 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 Uh -huh. So when you think of me, 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 I, 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 there's a certain network of the brain that lights up. And that's overdeveloped in people that have anxiety and depression because if you're constantly in pain and scared, you're a little self-absorbed, right? You're like, you can't help but keep thinking about yourself because, you know, it's a self-preservation technique. But this network acts as a repressive function for the rest part of your brain. And so when this network, you can think about it as a loud voice, quiets, the whole brain begins to come up and the entire subconscious, you know, arises and looking at MRI imaging, the whole thing interacts and many of these pathways stabilize. It increases neuroplasticity. And for those that are into meditation, the neuroscientists show it's very similar in terms of the quieting of the default mode network between long-time meditators and those that use psilocybin. 65% of people have a mystical experience in the right setting setting. I mean, that's you're talking about after 20 years follow-up, people say it's one of the top, most people say it's between one of the one to the third most important experience of their entire life. So we have the recreational use, which is amazing and it can be, and there's a lot we can get into, but when we come just to healing and spirituality, it's fairly uncomparable. Thank you for that, because that is really powerful data. What about the fears of addiction? So you mentioned that it can help with alcohol and cigarette or nicotine addiction. What about becoming addicted to the, to the psilocybin itself? You know, one big interest of myself in psychedelics, and I do love all of them, and I focus on psilocybin for a variety of reasons because I think it can be the most potent so far I've seen when it comes to really deep healing. It's quite an anomaly in our paradigm in many ways. In my 20 years of interests, I've yet to find a single person become addicted to psilocybin. And that's quite astounding because we can get addicted to almost anything. And so what we have found is it helps break addictive patterns. And you know, we can get into it later, the evolution of it's about 70 million years old, this compound and how it kind of developed and grew with our brain. But you can't really take high doses many days in a row and still have an experience. So if you take a, have a trip on day one, you might need double the second day, quadruple the third, and on day four, you could take any amount and it doesn't work. So oh, it doesn't keep having an effect. Right? That being said, because of how amazing the results have been and life-changing experiences when we see the documentaries and read the books, we kind of hear about the highlights, beautiful, epic, high-altitude experiences that are transformative. But what I've seen, and many people that really kind of stay with the psilocybin, it's it kind of works a lot with the shadow, like forces you to work with really hard, dark material, you know? So you might have a beautiful trip the first time, but if you try to trip a few days later, you're likely going to be working with some difficult emotions. 
which makes the transformation really real. It's like you're going to therapy. You're, you don't go in, oh my God, therapy's going to be amazing. It can be. But you're still there working with the wounds, you know, intergenerational within your biography. So it can give you quite a kick in the ass. So it's at some level, it doesn't become fun, but it's like growth oriented work. Mm. So it's very unlikely people are going to get there because you're not really in a state of euphoria. Likely you're going to have to deal with rage, shame, pain, fear, all of it, you know, because it, it comes up, whatever's repressed comes up to be healed. Wow, that's really fascinating. I am interested. I know you said that you focus on psilocybin. Do you have anything you can share in terms of the differentiation of the healing capabilities or the journeys with the various psychedelics? So from mushrooms to ayahuasca to LSD or and so forth. So those that you just named, they're part of the same chemical family called tryptamines. So DMT, which is the same compound in ayahuasca, LSD psilocybin and also the other well-known as 5-MeO-DMT that's called the God molecule. They're very similar in their structure, working with the same receptor sites, and they light up the same parts of the brain. So they are far more similar than difference. Of course, there's nuance, you know, so DMT by itself takes about 20, 30 minutes and it moves through your system. With ayahuasca, it's able to be elongated. LSD is like eight to 12 hours. Psilocybin is like four you know, 5-MeO-DMT is about 20 to 30. So one thing is just duration. is quite a difference and different potency by weight. There's other chemical families. Um, the phenethylamines like mescaline, which is in peyote and San Pedro. That also includes MDMA. There's also iboga, which is its own, ketamine and its own. So there's different families that interact with different parts of the brain. But as far as the tryptamines, which are the classical kind of psychedelics, you know, I focus on psilocybin because a lot of my research was the role it played in early human history. You know, the theory proposed by Terence and Dennis McKenna that it was probably what catapulted human evolution. The idea that our consciousness expanded while we were um, evolving in Africa, and there must have been a consciousness expanding substance in the area, and there's plenty. So there's over 200 different species of psilocybin mushrooms found around the world. It's very plentiful. So the idea that because it's part of our history, that it's so available worldwide, people can grow it. And it kind of really f- forces people generally to become an integrity, working with their shadows and so on. I thought it was just a great substance all around. It's one that I've come to really trust. Hmm. It's really, really fascinating that something that is this ancient and natural and grown in the ground is then like illegal to such a high degree. I don't know. How can we make that something from nature illegal. I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. I mean, completely. I'm at the root of it, fear. So yeah. anything that we really, it's so earth shattering, different than everything else within our paradigm. You could take a five grams and likely to have a mystical experience. I mean, talk to DD, see aliens, merge with the planet. It's a really intense, it can be, and transformative. And so Michael Pollan in his book, How to Change Your Mind, you know, one you just referred he says, what happened in the 60s, he says, at what other point in human history did the youth have such a searing rite of passage that the prior generation didn't understand? So the youth that came in contact with these psychedelics, life-transforming, different shifts in paradigms and identity, questioning the establishment, the government, the Vietnam War, moving for you know feminism, empowerment, and racial rights, changing the arts in general with music and media. And this level of quick change scared the older generation that was in control. So without looking at the scientific research, this is well documented, there's over 1,500 papers on LSD by like 1960. It was sweepingly made illegal out of fear. That being said, 
there's so many indigenous traditions that have been holding holding this little fire alive for millennia. You know, and we look back through history, the first religions, spiritual inclinations were shamanism. People that use the plants in the environment to work with spirit. And a lot of, I think my further research is how it was in the Americas before the Europeans came. You know, the Europeans came about 500 years ago, but people came here about 20,000 years ago. And there was about 70 million Americans here already, largely using psychedelics. So the Aztecs are really well known for using little cyber mushrooms in their political rituals, like in the inauguration of their leader, Montezuma II. The Incas had psychedelics, the Toltecs. No kidding. So so it was a huge part of human history. It's more Western culture in general that came from a religious mind frame, you know, just say Christianity, like where we have the only truth and we're not willing to look at other people's perspectives. So when the Europeans encountered shamanism, for a long time, they saw them as devil worshipers. And there was a lot of genocide, a lot of killing, you know, and breaking apart the rituals. So it's only that we've become more open-minded with anthropology, with psychology, that we've become open to taking in other people's perspectives. A lot of people still aren't there, but so it's only with this opening a culture that we were able to embrace and take any information, including these other modalities. Hmm. It's interesting. And, you know, speaking just about the religious context and, you know, you've talked about how there's so, so much research that shows how beneficial these experiences are for people, for example, who are facing terminal illness and the fact that it's not addictive. So there, but the, the effect of like one experience on somebody who is terminally ill is lasting. It's not just like while they're in this, it continues on even if they don't continue having journeys. And, it, and I think a lot of people don't, if I understand correctly, they're not seeking it out okay. a I lot, mean, but the experience stays with them and that healing continues. Am I correct? Absolutely. I, there's, it's quite a list of people that I've come in contact with out of just one experience that's changed their life. And that was definitely the case in my own life. And as I'd mentioned, it can, the experiences are quite difficult. The majority of the time when people show up to take the actual psychedelic, it's generally filled with a lot of anxiety. You know, so it's not something people really jump in to do over and over again. You're like, oh my God, I need to face the unknown today. And the general response to that, even in the body, even somebody like me that's had hundreds of journeys is still fear. And you kind of have to be willing to move through that threshold to really kind of break up that ego membrane and really kind of expand into something much larger. Mm, Yeah. Interesting. So fascinating. I'm curious about people who may need to avoid these types of things. Are there people? I mean, we've talked a lot about the benefits and the pros and the amazing healing capabilities. Are there people who should stay away from these substances? Yeah, so, so it's a nuanced response. You know, Terence McKenna is my favorite philosopher in this area. And he puts it up there as like, this is a part of a human right along with like having sex. So it's just a, an important part of the human experience. Again, it grows everywhere in nature. It's, I would say it's part of our evolution. It's our opening to deep spiritual experiences and psychological development. So there's a part of me that's just like, yes, open to everybody. But that doesn't mean necessarily open to them at any given moment in their life. So first and foremost, I would prefer and strongly encourage that the person's somewhat grounded, you know, and functioning. And so there's certain personality disorders that 
right now, I don't feel our society is able to hold while having these experiences. For example, borderline and schizophrenia, you know, where there could be quite of a lack of control within somebody's system, or they're already so ungrounded that they're constantly not sure what reality really is in their normal waking life, right? So this could be very destabilizing. That being said, the substances themselves, as I shared, heal different parts of the brain, including what's called the spinogenesis, the re-enlivening of dendrites. So one of the best researchers in this area is named Stanislav Gross. He also created holotropic breathwork. Some people might be familiar with that. And he's been working in this field for about 60 years, held space for about 50,000 people with all these different kind of consciousness-expanding modalities. And he says psychedelics catalyze what he calls holotropic states of consciousness, states that organically move towards wholeness. So the psyche tries to repair itself. So this is pretty much helpful for everybody, but there's a certain amount of people like the population I just named that might need an entire support team that might need a facility to stay in for a week, you know, and we don't, because of legality, we're moving in that direction. We don't have that infrastructure. So my hope is yes, everybody, but we're not able to hold everybody across the entire range right now. Mm. Do we know, you mentioned about, I think you said dendrons. Is that right? Dendrites. Dendrites. Yeah, so part of neurons within the brain. Is there, and you went into this a little bit, but like you said that it allows new connections to be made within the brain. And those, because when I think of mushrooms in the mycelial network, you know, it really is like this network. And I've heard or or seen evidence that there's like almost like a lattice work across the planet of... like a mushroom lattice sort of underneath the surface of the earth and just how much the planet relies on this and how, you know, if we go down the mushroom track aside from psychedelics, the healing capabilities from the planet of mushrooms is astounding. So then I think about that in the brain where it's making new like connections within the brain, just like it does within the planet itself. But does that do we have research to show if that holds or is that like while while they're having the experience? No, it holds. It holds. Similarly, so the neuroplasticity, the brain's able to shift and the, the re-enlivening of the dendrites definitely come back to life and stabilize. And just I love the context you brought in of fungi as a whole, you know, because in my research, again, like how does something so powerful and that seems to give higher ordered experiences of consciousness exist, this can't be random. So we have to look at it from an evolutionary standpoint. And so fungi is one of the three large kingdoms of biology, fungi, plants, animals. And fungi is about 2.5 billion years old. Animals are about 500 million. So it's about five times older than animals. And it's different from plants. It's different, different from plants. Completely. So fungi breathes oxygen. Categorically, it's a little bit closer to animals than it is plants. No but kidding. All- but all these oh involved goodness. in a deep symbiotic relationship. Everything's so interdependent because we've been evolving together, co-evolving this entire time. And so fungi created the first root systems in plants. They were the first roots. So they came onto land, broke down the soil, plants emerged onto land from the waters. So 90% of plants have a symbiotic relationship to mycelium. And mycelium is a large underground body of fungi. 80% of them would stop existing if mycelium went out. So mycelium, this large almost like you say neuronal network, like brain network across pretty much the entire ground of the planet, connects all these root systems and sends electrical impulses to all the plants that could communicate, breaks down dead matter, you know, a biological matter, so it can become nutrients for everything. So we've been evolving on top of this living network our entire history here on land. And out of this comes the mushroom. 
and that fits in, and then the psilocybin cell fits in the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor in our brain better than serotonin itself, really showing this long line of evolution. But to really kind of circle back to this part around the dendrites of coming back to life, most people I see coming into this work is because of depression. Depression and anxiety, it's a rising epidemic. The World Health Organization says it's the number one reason for disability worldwide is depression. No kidding. And, wow. and what I've seen depression comes down to ultimately is I don't like myself. There's a level of shame. And if you don't like yourself, life is inherently sad and hard. As opposed to if you really like yourself, then there's confidence and there's pleasure. And so much of this I don't like myself comes from the sense of feeling fragmented and alienated and separate from your family, from your community, from the planet, from the universe, right? And so what happens in depression is literally parts of the brain get separated. Like that's what happens. Those dendrites become atrophy and the brain's no longer fully connected. And so the sense of separation is happening in the brain and it's happening experientially. What oh my happens, goodness. Right, wow. right? So everything, matter, spirit, consciousness, so intertwined and mirroring. So what happens when the brain hyperconnects, and you can see the MRIs of the brain on psilocybin and then on placebo, the whole thing hyperconnects, right? And then experience, people have experienced the sense of unity, of oneness with themselves, with the planet, with the universe, and so on, which I say as the most healing experience. And so the brain unifies, and a lot of those pathways stabilize. So those dislocated parts of I'm different, I'm rejected, I don't belong, can merge where all of a sudden I feel part of the environment, part of the planet, connected to love, you know, having a sense of purpose. So a lot of those structures in consciousness stabilize, and a lot of those structures in the brain begin to stabilize. That is fascinating that the physical connections within the brain start to join together and the emotional feeling that comes from that. Because we talk a lot. I mean, just it's becoming more and more accepted, more and more understood, the role of emotions in our physical health. And of course, like the mind-body-spirit connection, you know, that's another leap that a lot of people are taking. But, you know, I would not say that the majority of humanity is there. But a lot of people do at least accept the mind-body connection. But to see that actually illustrated in like an MRI scan or however they're showing the imaging of the brain and the completeness that's happening in their, the way that they feel mm -hmm. and the completeness that we can see happening within the brain, that's like mind-blowing. Totally, Beautiful. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, just to... I think science, you know, is pretty definite on our interconnectivity. If you're looking through physics, chemistry, biology, ecology, even economics, everything's so intertwined. And so is our consciousness with everything else. It's emerging in this relationship, this large web. And I'm glad we're moving through a paradigm shift as seeing this body-mind relationship. Because when you think about it, well, where else is the mind? It's not like it's over here outside of my body. It's part of my body. My entire body is one system that evolves and consciousness is embedded in that. So, of course, if I tweak parts of my brain chemically, it's going to tweak my consciousness. You know, mm -hmm. so there's definitely, and I think there's enough work on trauma right now where a lot of people can ground that emotions are in the body. You know, we store them as tensions in the body. And to really heal, we have to move those tensions out of the body. Mm -hmm. So definitely the whole thing is one unitary phenomenon. Yeah, that's amazing. Is there anything that you want to share in terms of your own experience or the experience of people that you've worked with in terms of notable experiences with psilocybin in case there are people who are listening who may have an idea of what it is, but not really proper stories that they can <laughs> or a way to relate to it in terms of a personal mm -hmm. account? 
Yeah, so I can give us a general pattern. One of the things that draws me to this particular substance, and there are so many, is that it's different every time, which means that you get to keep growing forever. It's always new and kind of meets you where you're at. So the indigenous societies see psilocybin and other plants like ayahuasca, ibogas, as plant teachers, that these are actual entities with their own consciousness that you come into relationship with over and over over a course of a lifetime. And so when you go in, some of the things people see right away that are the most common are like geometric patterns. So your entire landscape and visual experience is filled with the symmetry of like moving geometry, which for me signifies that something intelligent is happening. You're coming in contact with some of their consciousness and showing mathematical symbols. And this geometry arises cross-culturally, across-world, regardless of people's knowledge or influence about it. You know, so I can give a decent dose to somebody you know, in Africa or China or India who's never heard of psychedelics, and they're probably going to see these same patterns. And then there can come the felt sense of an intelligence and presence, sometimes moving you through your biography, you know, through your past history to heal, sometimes moving you out through space and showing you the history of evolution. You know, for me, the deepest healings are those that we could classify as spiritual, that there's some deep intelligence embedded that kind of unites everything has been the most healing for me. But I've seen... Almost half the time, and it's a big number, so half the time I've seen people's life change with one experience, right? And the hardest part, though, for my work has been doing this legally in Jamaica and might be hard for the listener is it, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. There's no medicine or modality that's 100% effective for the population. No pharmaceuticals, no transformative modality. And so there's certain people I've seen that you can give them any amount of medicine and nothing happens. You know, and so the hardest part of my work has been dealing with disappointment. People come in and read these facts, the data, hear the transformations, and then it doesn't happen for them. And they're like, why not me? Is something wrong with me? You know, so that's the hard part. The big risk done in the right setting is not a whole lot happens for you. Yeah. But the, the numbers are still in their favor. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you. What about microdosing? I think we're hearing a lot these days about microdosing, and maybe you can just even explain what that is if there's somebody listening who's not sure. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too, because everything we've talked about here is like, you know, proper journeys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, I just recently learned like the deep history of how that arose. And so people may or may not know that the chemist's name was Albert Hoffman. He was the first to synthesize and slash create LSD. And took it like in the early 1940s. He was also the first to synthesize psilocybin, right? And so this guy played a monumental role in the world of psychedelics. And and it wasn't, sorry to interrupt you, but wasn't LSD, it was created by Merck. Didn't he work for Merck? I think or it was called Zandos, I think. Oh, it was, it's okay. another pharmaceutical company. A Merck, I think it was the emergence of MDMA. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this guy was working for a pharmaceutical company in Switzerland and accidentally took some and then had a bike ride home, kind of a general, like the beginnings of mystical experience. He thought this could be revolutionary. The pharmaceutical company didn't know what to do with it. So they started selling LSD all around the world to seem like, what can psychiatrists do with this? There's something here. And so that became kind of plentiful, but it was still in the background. It was still in the areas of research and scientists and different artists that had access, but it wasn't available and open to the public. And LSD is very similar to psilocybin. LSD actually is derived from a fungi, ergots, right? So it's, they're pretty similar, even though they have different characteristics. Uh, Gordon Wasson was the J.P. Morgan banker that first went to Mexico and heard of tribes using mushrooms. And then he went and had, was the first Westerner having a, an intentional psilocybin mushroom experience in 1955. 
published his experience in Life magazine in 1957, and then the world became aware of mushrooms. And somebody like Timothy Leary, who was at Harvard, the doctor doing the psilocybin research, went to tried psilocybin, had a big thing, brought it to Harvard, and then later came across LSD and really kind of spread LSD everywhere. So really to circle back with Albert Hoffman, he, during the last several years of his life, you know, he became open that he was taking about 50 micrograms of LSD regularly, walking out of nature. So it's a, that was a, that's a light medium dose. It's a significant dose. So you're really feeling this. Well, James Fadiman, the man who's really popularized the movement of microdosing, or the psychedelic explorers guy that's been working in this field for about almost 60 years, he, when Albert Hoffman said 50 mics, for some reason, James Fadiman thought he said five mics, which is a much smaller amount, right? And so he's like, well, what can we do with this small level and take it on a regular basis? There might be a lot of potential here. So he's hired those for about 10 mics now, but with, out of that miscommunication, it enticed him to learn like microdosing. And so there's been a questionnaire that he's put out where about 1,500 people has responded to using microdosing with LSD and psilocybin. 90% feel improved in their life. 10% feel an increase in anxiety. So again, it doesn't work for everybody. So the idea is taking what's called the sub, sub-perceptual threshold. So the experience is more in the background, not the foreground. So like if you're taking a big mushroom experience, three to five grams, it's the main star of your experience. It's like, this is what happened. You're tripping. This is more like there's a small enhancement, but I'm going along with my everyday life. I'm taking care of my children. I'm doing my work. I'm going to exercise. And it tends to add just a little bit of stimulation, like a little bit of energy. But most people also experience less judgment and openness, more presence, uplifting of depression. So kind of antidepressive faculties, increase in productivity. You know, again, so these small factors of the brain hyperconnecting, the default mode network kind down, they're still in effect. But it's such a small amount that people can build a deep relationship with it. And also it's a nice entrance because a lot of people have fear of psychedelics. And here's like, well, worst case situation, you might experience anxiety for a couple hours. Worst case. You know, at best, this is a great replacement for antidepressants and pharmaceuticals that people are addicted to and they're on there for <laughs> sometimes 20 years. Yeah. Is there like a, a build, like if you were going to microdose, is there like a build up to where you could, you, because is it every day that you would take it? So, a little bit every day? One, say so if we're looking at psilocybin LST, Super safe, no biotoxicity. Theoretically, you have to take a thousand doses to die. Very, very clean compounds. That being said, tolerance does build, right? It, it stops having an effect. So you could take it every day, but it's generally been encouraged to take two to three days off a week. So LSD okay. is really strong. So it's one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off mm-hmm. with LSD. Psilocybin's okay. like four or five days a week. And that just allows the tolerance to come back down so you can start to feel the effects again. And would it be something for like long term or for people who are microdosing, are they doing this like indefinitely or is there like a period of treatment? It's as needed, you know, so again, it's safe. That being said, my experience, I've gone through different rounds of it. I'll do it for three months and then for some reason I just lose interest and then I'll come back a year later to it. And so I think it, it depends on the intention. Definitely better than pharmaceuticals, but if the point is just to feel balanced and happy and you get there, you can definitely stop. You know, if you're doing this as an area of study and building relationship or using it for meditation, you know, keep going. I see it more as an art, given especially that there's no real harm. It's an art. You know, the way we kind of, I drink 
tea every day. You know, Michael Pollan wrote in his new book, you know, this is your mind on plants, look at psychedelics and other psychoactives. 90% of the planet uses caffeine. It's just intertwined in our life. It's okay. You know, mm-hmm. so it can be a, that symbiotic synergistic effect. It's if it's serving you, take it. If it's no longer serving you and it's getting in the way, stop. <laughs> okay. All right. I like that. Is there any practical advice that you would give for seekers, you know, spiritual seekers who want to use psychedelics in terms of like how it can be done responsibly, obviously including but not even limited to the legality issue? So, yeah, legality has been quite a big factor for so long. It looks like federal legalization is going to be taking place in 2024, maybe 2025. So around the corner, that's a big deal all across the U.S. for medical use. and so. For the depression, for psilocybin, it can be start being prescribed and MDMA for PTSD. The protocol is still going to be quite, I'm going to say rigid. It's just it's having to do with safety where you will have to go to a clinic, probably stay there overnight. There will probably be a few professionals there with you almost the entire time. So MDMA, two therapists with a doctor also on board. So it's that being said, the main difficulty I see with a lot of this is accessibility. So costs will still be probably pretty high. You know, it looks for MDMA treatment, which include three journeys is going to be about twelve to $15,000, you know, so wow. it, it'll, yeah, so it's, it's hard. The other part, if people try it on their own and coming with terms of legality, you know, we've decriminalized it here in Oakland. I testified in court. A lot of places have decriminalized. Now, Oregon has legalized and Denver has legalized and a lot, it's moving in that direction. It looks like around the corner, California will decriminalize it across the entire state. And so the problem there still is having accessibility specifically to trained individuals. So first and foremost, I'd recommend, this can be a very sensitive, vulnerable time This for, while you're in this state. Find somebody that's trained in this, you know, hopefully a therapist, a guide, somebody that's spent a lot of time in this territory. That might be hard to find for a lot of people and still cost a lot of money. You know, you're asking people to go find a trained therapist. A lot of people can't afford that. I know a second option that I'd recommend is a ceremonial setting where there is, again, a therapist or somebody that plays the role of a, a shaman, and they're working with a larger group of people. So you don't quite have that individualized attention, you know, but it costs less, and you're having this group experience it can be very healing. And the last thing I would, I can't quite recommend, but I know will happen is self-experimentation. And I, it's hard for me to recommend because it, it can be traumatic. You know, chances are in your favor, it's going to go fine. It's dose dependent. And so I do recommend having a sitter, you know, not necessarily somebody that necessarily has a deep training in this, but is educated enough just to help you feel safe and take care of you. And so me and some friends created a free online training for this. It's at silohealth.co, P-S-I-L-O health.co. It's a free four-hour training to help people learn how to sit for each other, you know, because we see this major issue. And... And all the trainings cost money. So we wanted to create a free training so people in underprivileged communities, you know, need to start to heal each other because they're really, it's very unlikely they're going to have, you know, ability to go out of the country to do this legally in Jamaica or to find a specialist to work with them. Oh, that's so beautiful. Wow. Thank you for that. This has just been really, really fascinating. I really appreciate all of your expertise. Can you help people to find you? How can people yeah. connect with you? Totally. No, thanks. My website's psychedelicevolution.org. And my book's on all the platforms, you know, in all the formats. So ebook, it's on Audible, it's on an audiobook, and 
Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, you know, wherever people are buying books. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jahan. I have really, really enjoyed connecting with you today. Likewise. Thank you, Kara. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love to ask you for one quick favor, and that's to share this episode with one person who you think will benefit from it. Let them know you're thinking about them by sharing this episode with them right now. Thank you, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.